0: Growing in love for others, we explored the biblical character of Joseph from Genesis and how he practiced radical forgiveness, even for his brothers who so wickedly cast him aside and faked his death and sold him into slavery. And today, we're going to look at another biblical character, Ruth has an entire book named after her. And that's very odd because Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a foreign woman. And many people might recognize this at the end of the 60s, into the 70s. This was very popular to read at weddings. And so just as 1 Corinthians has become that popular now. This was what a lot of people read, although taken out of context, you probably wouldn't realize that this has nothing to do with marriage. This is not a pledge between a woman and a man or a man and his wife. Instead, this is, of all things, a covenantal pledge between a daughter-in-law and her mother-in-law. And to set the stage for you, in the book of Ruth, there is a man from the Israelite clans, and he and his wife and his two sons were experiencing a famine in the Promised Land, and so they go to a neighboring nation of Moab that does not have good foreign relations with Israel, and goes there, and the dislike between Moabites and Israelites is well into the past, all the way back in Genesis. They do not get along with each other. And so they go there fleeing from a famine and starvation to find food and to make a new life for themselves, which they do. Both of the man's sons take Moabite women for their wives. And things kind of go along for a little while, and then tragedy strikes this family. Both the man, and his wife is Naomi, both Naomi's husband and her two sons are killed. And Naomi is left with these two daughters-in-law. And when we pick up the story in the text, the sons have just died. And Naomi now has decided that she will go back to Israel, back to the promised land. And she does not go there with any other hope than to die in the promised land. And this is what was to be expected in the day. There was no social security net. There was no safety net in society for widows and orphans. And so if you didn't have a son who was grown enough to take care of you, widowhood was a death sentence. And so she goes back to die with her people. And the two daughters-in-law start to go with her. And she says to them these words, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. And she compels them to go home, to return to their father's homes, that they are still young and attractive enough. They could get married and still have a life. They don't have to go back and die. And one of the sisters-in-law, Orpah, she does turn back. She weeps bitterly, but she leaves and returns to her father's household. And then Naomi says to Ruth, go back like her. Go back to your father's house. You still have a chance to live. And Ruth says, no. Do not make me turn back from you. Do not drive me away. I am committed to you. And then she says the words that I read just a moment ago about her commitment. And she is changing the relationship in her declaration. Where you go, I will go. And your people are now my people. I will become an Israelite to be with you and your God will be my God. They did not worship the Lord in Moab. They had their own deities, and she is setting aside all that she is to be loyal and committed to Naomi. It's not often that we hear about this kind of relationship between in-laws. So it's an amazing moment that she would commit to her, and what Ruth is actually committing to is to go back and die with Naomi. Where you die, I will die. And I will be buried there with you. If this is the end for you, Naomi, then it shall be my end as well. And so they head back into Israel and they go back to Naomi's hometown. And when they go back there, it is not easy just because they are together. Naomi is too old to work, and so she stays in the house that they were able to acquire. And Ruth goes out every day to glean, to pick wheat and barley that they may live. And she can't just pick enough for herself, she's got to pick enough for Naomi. And she will struggle hard to fulfill this vow, this commitment of loyalty to Naomi. And as she does this, the Lord smiles upon her for her faithfulness and her generosity and her goodness to Naomi. Because she had the opportunity to be set free from Naomi. To completely turn aside from that life and start her own path. And she refused to. She refused to forsake Naomi and her trouble. And so they go back, and it just so happens that if you continue to read the story, and you can read it very quickly. I've done it in an entire hour in a Bible study, reading every line, and still having conversations. So I encourage you at some point to read the story. It's an incredible story. It's a little more salacious than you probably know, but that's the fun in it. And so in the story, it just so happens that God leads things along in a very hands-off approach. And so she ends up finding herself in the field of a gentleman who is not only kinsman to Naomi, but who ultimately will profess his desire to marry Ruth and redeem her and Naomi and the entire story. And lest we forget how crucial that is to not only take on a new wife, but her mother-in-law, take her on into your home, but also to redeem the land and the story that was associated with her husband. And it's a crucial thing because Ruth is named in the genealogy of Jesus. If she had not stayed with Naomi, then the genealogy would not have occurred as it did. And if she had not been the person that she was, then that would have changed all of the genetic indicators that go not only into King David but into our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the story is crucial. It's vital because loyalty is important. But I'm not talking about blind loyalty. I'm not talking about the kind of loyalty that sometimes I encounter nowadays where if you don't like what I'm doing, then you're not my friend. You ever heard that? You know, if that applied, then I apparently am my child's worst enemy. My child would turn around to me and go, if you don't don't like what I'm doing, if you don't like everything I'm saying and doing, then you clearly don't love me. Okay. Um, Which my response would be, I brought you into this world and I will take you out (laughs) and do a very lovely funeral. But it's not about that. Instead, the loyalty that I depict for my son is, I am committed to you and all that God wants you to be. And sometimes that means edifying and encouraging, and sometimes that means going, we're going to have a come-to-Jesus moment right here, because this is not right, and I can't have you doing this. And so in a world where our children and our young people and our 20-somethings are raised to think that loyalty is as fleeting as the clicking the unfriend button on Facebook, We have to talk about the depths of loyalty. We have to talk about what that means. And loyalty to a friend or or to a neighbor or to a family member doesn't mean that I simply take all of your garbage and your drama onto me. That's not what that's about. That's self-martyrdom and that's a pretty ugly thing that's not what we're talking about instead we're talking about learning to be with someone and being committed to someone there are plenty of times where those who are in our sphere of living or those who are in our life those people that we love are going through something that we cannot fix that we cannot change but we can be present with them We can be with them in that ministry of presence, as it's referred to in the church, that it's possible to be with someone. It's possible to lend them your ear, lend them your presence, let them know that you are there to help them figure out what to do. We don't want to get savior complex where any one of us thinks that we can fix somebody else's problems. Because you'll notice in the church, it's never just one. We together discern and determine how we will help other people. That is how it works. And so we want to ensure that loyalty is truly about the person and not blind loyalty to whatever relationship we think we have with the person. More and more, I've had encounters where I've noticed people who feel completely abandoned. They've had a life change. They've been separated from their spouse or they've lost their job or they've struggled with addiction and whatever it is, they feel completely abandoned and alone because It's messy when people have their own drama. It's messy when things go wrong for other people. And sometimes we act like it's bubonic plague. And if I'm friends with you in the midst of this, I could catch it. And that's not what we have to fear. We don't have to fear that being present with someone else is going to infect our well-being. Christ protects us from that. We don't have to worry about that. You have been inoculated with the Holy Spirit. You do not have to worry that someone else's drama has to become your own simply because you are ministering to them in their time of need. Instead, we are called to ensure that we let people know that no matter how sin wrecks havoc in their lives, whether it's theirs or someone to whom they are covenanted or they are family members with or someone they work with, however it is, that we do not Cast them off and reject them simply because they have encountered sin. We are called to be a people that let those who suffer know that there is another way. A God-ordained path and a Christ-like response to suffering. It is not rejection. I had to go through this with my son a little while ago because he was playing this online game with Children in his class and his grade. And again, we are just real fascinated with friending people online. So he's friends with these people online that he's friends with in real life. And then they spend all their time unfriending each other and blocking each other. I, I mean, it's like daytime television is alive in my eight-year-old. And so one day I was like, you know, you need to, you need to stop this stuff. This is really bad behavior. I don't, I don't understand how there's anything edifying about unfriending somebody that you sit with on the bus. I don't understand how that's supposed to work. And so one day he came and he said, I really do think I need to unfriend one of my friends. Why? Because he's bullying another child in our class. What do you mean he's bullying this person? Like in class, like he's messing with this person? And he said, no. He said instead, when she gets online to play the game, he makes it so that she can't interact with other people because he has administrator rights. And he makes it so that anytime she goes anywhere, it transports her to the farthest point away from us. He's bullying her online. And I said, that sounds pretty horrific. And he goes, yeah, it's wrong. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, I don't want to be associated with that. She and I are are working things out. We've had our issues last year, and things are going well, and I don't want to be a part of that. I said, okay. I said, well, here's the deal. If you unfriend him, then you have to -to face-to-face tell him why. You have to tell him why you're doing it. You can't just click on friend. You gotta tell him why. Because I know what that's like. I remember going all through seminary with people. I mean that's it's a three year it's a three year program in seminary to get your masters in divinity, but it feels like forty years, especially in New Jersey. So I remember doing this, going through seminary with someone. And, I mean, we were in, like, a, at least one class every semester together. I mean, we had been through a lot of stuff together. And then we graduate, and about a couple months later, I noticed that their stuff doesn't appear in my feed anymore. And I was like, this is weird. So I, so I went to go bring up their Facebook page, and they had unfriended me. I was like, what is this about? Why did I get unfriended? I, I don't understand did our past relationship mean nothing? All of, that, all of that suffering meant nothing because you moved north and I returned back south? Like, what, is, what does this mean? And I never heard from the person. I never had any context under which, you know, I'm trimming down my Facebook page or whatever these things we say to each other is. Never had any of that. Instead, I was just left feeling cast aside and alone and abandoned and thinking that, was our entire friendship a sham? Did it mean that little to you? I thought it meant a lot to me. I don't know. I have no idea. I'll never know. But the point is that loyalty is about caring for the relationship that helps both individuals get better. It is not about a relationship where you're my friend and you're doing wrong, but I got your back because you're my friend. That's not what that's about. And the older I get, the more I have to have conversations with my friends to say, I love you, but what you are doing, this is not the person that I know and love. This is destructive behavior. This is hurting other people. And I love you enough to know that this isn't who you woke up and said you wanted to be. But this is hurting all of us. It's hurting me to watch you suffer because of what you're doing. And when you have to do that, people's first reaction is, well, you don't love me. No, I do love you. If I didn't love you, I'd walk away in some really fabulous shoes. i will walk right away. But that's not what's happening here. You know, I have to, we have to understand that the commitment is not to what they are now, but it's the commitment to the person that we know and love and the potential that God places in them. It's about the potential that people place in them. I don't want blind loyalty. I don't want you to go, well, Sarah said it, it must be true. Ask me. Ask me to show you where it is in Scripture. Ask me to show you where it is in the book of Discipline. Ask me what's going on. I don't want your blind loyalty. I want your loyalty because you know that I'm doing my best, that I'm trying to follow the Scriptures in the book of Discipline, that I'm trying to live up to the same covenant that I make with the church that echoes the words of Ruth. We have a sent ministry in the United Methodist Church, which means that I didn't get to look and go, hmm, I would like to go to Crozet. That's not how it happened. In fact, the bishop called me up and is like, You're going to crozet. And I'm like, What? Really? That's the difference is that as clergy, I echo the words to the church where you go, I will go. Where you place me, where you house me, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. So when the bishop said, These are your people, I went, These are my people. You know, and then every now and then you want to pull a Moses thing where you're like, "Um, these are your people. You gave them to me. No, I don't have that problem. I don't have that problem. But it is about a covenant of I will follow where you send me. And it's not just for clergy. I model my commitment, this loyalty to my vows. I have made vows. You who have joined the church have made vows. You have pledged your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness to this body of Christ. Now, last week, Sunday started out like a a really unholy purgatory. When I come to the church to find out that someone has broken in, kicked open my door, and rifled through my things, that's not a good day. And I shared that with you last week, that that's where I was starting from. And and, And by the grace of God... It wasn't on any other day but a Sunday, because really when I get up and I'm like, I've got two worship services and I've got a baptism and there's about 35 people that came for this baptism and you're going, really, God? This is not the day for this, but it was because what happened was miraculous. What happened was that if it had been any other day, I would have sat around real angry and it would have festered and then I go to wrath of God mode and we all know that ain't pretty. But instead. I had to lock it down and I had to refocus myself on what was most important. And what was most important was the worship of the body of Christ. And back-to-back worship services, I had to get myself in gear. And I had to focus on what's truly important. Yeah, I can't even lock my office. I don't even know what's in there. I have no idea. But you know what? This is what is most important right now. And after every worship service, people ask me, what can we do? And by the end of the 11 o'clock worship service, when y'all were leaving and people were saying, what could you do? I could answer, truly, you've already done it. You were here. You were here. 363 people worshiped here last week. That's what I needed. I needed 360 people to get me out of my head to focus on what was important. I needed people to redirect me from the inward anger to the sermon and the point of forgiveness. And you did it because you were here. Now, I don't know if some of you were like, oh, the Holy Spirit's telling me i got to go to church right now. I don't know how many of you had that experience. But I'm sure a lot of you were like, we committed to this church. We come here on Sunday. Or your parents raised you so that it's Sunday and you're going to be in church. Whatever happened, right? Or some of you know that, you know, we got, we got to go to church because this is what's important to me. This is what I need, or this is what I'm supposed to do. Whatever you were here, it does not matter because you were here. And your loyalty and your faithfulness to being here was a means of grace to me. And I can say that Because I know that by the end of the 11 o'clock worship service, I was so far into a healthier mindset. I was so much able to refocus myself off of the anger into what I needed to be. You all didn't need an angry pastor. This is not what you needed. And I'm in a place now where if I ever have contact with this gentleman, I can truly practice what I preach because of you. Because you came here. Because you joined me in my worship. You participated. We gather here every week to be prepared and edified to do this work of loyalty. I don't know if that, if that has reached home. But that is why we come here. I don't come here because my mom said it's Sunday we're going to church. I don't live with my mother. I do what I want. I do what I want. But I come here because... I understand that this is who I am and what I'm called to be, and I know that on those weird times where I'm not with you on worship on Sunday, my whole week is off until we're back here together. My whole week is wrecked because this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where God has called me and God has sent me, and I need to be nourished here just like you do. I need to come here so that God can speak to me and into my heart and rid me of my guilt and my sin so that I can be refreshed and revived and restored and ready to do the work of this next week. Because sometimes we come here and last week was horrible. Sometimes you come here and you're like, I don't even know why I'm bothering to get up anymore. God, you better redeem last week because last week felt like Holy Week. Instead, we come here because we know that no matter what happened last week, that is the past. We are forgiven, loved, and free people, and tomorrow is ours. Tomorrow is ours because God has given it to us and said that I will be with you. I will restore you and equip you. I will empower you and encourage you and challenge you. Whatever it is that you need to get out and do what it is that we have been called to do as disciples of Jesus Christ. And the mission has not changed. We are here to make disciples to transform the world. We're not just adding to our roles. It's not just go and make disciples. We are going to transform the world because we have two entire generations now that don't understand what loyalty looks like. Loyalty doesn't mean you like me and never call me into account. Loyalty doesn't mean that you ignore the things that I do wrong or that I do poorly just because we're friends and we don't want to cause any waves in the water friendship that is true and that is loyal and that is godly parts waters let's just get through all the garbage and let's just get right to the issue because i love you and i know you we part the waters all of the veneer all of the ambiance of friendship as if friends don't ever fight all of that we we get right through that and we focus on the truth i love you and i care about you and this is hurting you This is hurting you, this is hurting me, this is hurting others, and this is not who God created you to be. Jesus didn't die on the cross for this kind of crap. Jesus died that we could show the world what loyalty looks like. True loyalty, divine loyalty like that of Ruth. Someone who was so committed, I will go to you when it is hard, I will go with you if it even leads to the grave. I will be with you every step of the way. And does God not promise that much and more? So we have to model it for people. They have to encounter it in us, that we are here for them. We are here for them when the finances hit hit rock bottom, We are there for them when families divide, when families are going through turmoil. We are there when mental illness strikes. We are there when there is a physical catastrophe or they get sick. We are there because unlike everyone else in the world, we are not going to let fear send us running the other way. And fear is a very real thing. Fear makes us feel like we are next. Divorce isn't catching. It is not going to catch you if you love someone who's encountering brokenness. Mental illness is not like the flu. If you know someone who's going through depression and you go and you visit them and you care for them in their time of need, you are not suddenly going to become manic because God is with you and equipping you. And I can tell you right now, there are plenty of times where I'm scared to go do what I have to do but then the Holy Spirit speaks from within and goes, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? I'm not asking you to go in there and cast out demons. I'm asking you to go in there and be with this person and love them. That I can handle. Casting out demons is not my thing. I don't have the shoes for that. But you and I together, you together, all of us is one in the body of Christ. We can do what needs to be done. We can be loyal To the mission and the ministry of Jesus Christ by showing our loyalty to others, by loving them in the midst of hardship, by being honest and speaking the truth in love. Got to add that in love part. Being empowered by Jesus Christ doesn't mean we walk up to everybody and tell them every nasty thing we've ever thought. Instead, We tell them what needs to be said in order to help them get to the next place. And it's not, you need to check yourself because you're out of control. It's, what is going on? How can I help you get past this? Because this doesn't resonate with me as who you truly are. Notice the difference? We love people where they are. You know, I, I spent a whole lot of time resenting my sister because she loved to take on everybody's angst, everybody's drama. I even had a t-shirt, made that said something should just remain between you and God because her drama was so overflowing our household and I couldn't take it because there is a place for your drama. We bring our drama here because some of us have drama that even together as the body of Christ, we can't figure out. We got to bring it here. We have to bring it here. Because there is nothing that is going on in our lives, on our friends' lives, our family's lives, at work, at school, in our neighborhood, that God cannot bear. And if we simply walk away from people in their time of need, they are hearing that message. Not even Jesus wants a part of this. Jesus walked right into the midst of institutionalized drama and overturned the tables. We are those people who say, enough with casting people aside, enough with telling people that they're irredeemable, enough, we are going to show them a loyal love because God's loyalty has been unequivocal for us. There has never been a day where God has turned God's back on you. That day will never come. If you desire grace, it is yours. We must live our lives to preach that message Every day. And that is what someone breaking into the toy store that is my office taught me last week. I have no doubt that was very disappointing. There's no computer. There's no stuff. Well, there's lots of stuff. I mean, if he was an eight-year-old girl, it would have been like field day. But he's not. He's Not an eight-year-old girl. Which tells me that there was something really dark and hurtful going on in that person. That I don't know, that I don't understand. I probably don't have the past to under, to know. But I know that God has put me in a place where I can give something that no judicial system can give and that is forgiveness. Yeah. And so I'm going to practice what I preach. And I'm going to forgive that person. And I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that I keep forgiving. Won't you join me? May it be so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.